it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Julio Rodriguez, and this is the Lookout Landing Podcast. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Today, we are adding to the list of historic guests to grace this podcast, although as far as I know, this is the first one to be a published author. Uh, I'm joined by Emily Nemens, author of the new book, Cactus League, which you can get now. Uh, Emily is also the editor of the Paris Review and grew up in Seattle as a Mariner fan, which we will get to later. Uh, But first, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show, Emily. How's it going? Thank you. Thank you for having me. Things are going well. Um, hello from New York. Hello from Seattle. Uh, I must extend an obligatory, uh, how are you holding up during these trying times? Um, you know, I my family is still in Seattle. And so, of course, first I was freaked out and concerned about everyone in Seattle. And my sister's a first responder there. And... Um, now, of course, my family is all concerned about me in New York. Um, you know, we've been practicing social distancing for almost two months now. Um, knock on wood, still healthy. I can work from home and I feel really grateful for that. Um, you know, I don't see a lot of salad right now, um, but <laughs> that is a fine and uh, I, that is a good problem to have. Um, we're doing okay. 
Yeah, I think I'm mostly in the same boat as you. Uh, okay is probably the perfect word to describe it. It's uh, certainly been a lot of solitude, which I don't really mind. It's just, I guess, kind of the lack of choice that's driving me a little mad. Like, the scope of things I can do on a given day is so limited, and the only similar thing I can remember is, like, being grounded as a kid, you know? But that didn't last an indefinite amount of time like this has, so... The uncertainty is what's getting to me, but like you said, I can't really complain. I have my health. I can work from home, and luckily podcasting is something that can be done through extreme social distancing, even on two completely opposite ends of the country. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, cool. So I want to talk about the book, obviously, and then um, for the longtime listeners who have tuned in for our Why I'm a Mariners fan series, we'll get into a little bit of that towards the end and talk to Emily about how she became a Mariners fan, how that's evolved over time, and all the all the good stuff that we've been doing all off season. But uh, first, you have a you have a book that's out right now. It's very exciting. Um, the book is called The Cactus League, and you can get it wherever you get books, I would imagine. And uh, to summarize, from what I've gathered from our lovely staff, uh, it's a book about a fictional player named Jason Goodyear of the Los Angeles Lions. Someone described him to me as like Mike Trout, but more interesting. And uh, the book sort of explores his time at spring training, hence the title. So, uh, Emily, without spoiling too much, what can you tell us about Jason Goodyear? Yeah, Jason Goodyear is a generational player. Um, he's a left fielder. You know, I grew up in Seattle. We'll talk more about being a Mariners fan. But, you know, any uh, Mariners fan who existed in the 90s can understand what a generational outfielder can be like um, in Ken Griffey Jr. But, you know, I was interested in building, you know, sort of a, a GOAT kind of greatest of all time player um, that had this real sort of rift or complication by his private life being confused and complicated and private you know and this is a moment of social media and tabloids and and the internet um have sort of removed all all veneers or all walls and all sort of barriers of a professional life and a private life and and what happens if one of these just supreme you know gold glove mvp all-star kind of athletes um can perform on the field, but can't function off the field. Uh, what does that mean for him? What does that mean for his teammates? What does that mean for his um, uh, his family and friends and sort of the concentric circles and the ripple effects of one person who is really pivotal to a team um, having a crisis? And so that was, you know, the motivation behind the book. But rather than just sort of you know, having a camera over Jason's shoulder for the whole book, I really wanted to think about those ripples and waves and how um, his actions impact the whole team and the whole community. And and so that was sort of the guiding principle. Um, some of the chapters are really close in on Jason, but it also roves around the clubhouse, you might say, everything from the batting coach to someone in the front office, um, I wanted to read just a little bit from in the middle of the book, which is following around a pitcher who's just coming back from Tommy John surgery, but then also off the field, you know, the, um, the PA, like the personal assistant to a major sort of Scott Boris type of agent and uh, a groupie, uh, the organist. So really thinking about 
you know, all the people that come together to make a team and to support one of these generational athletes in their own small ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned the reading. We will get to that. Uh, Emily is going to read a little passage from the book later. But first, I just have, I mean, I have so many questions. Like I said, we've never had uh, an author promoting a book on the show. So my first question- Well, you've never not had baseball in May, right? That is also true. That is also true. Yeah, I think (laughs) right now we'd be sort of lamenting the Mariners' early season struggles, I would imagine, or maybe marveling at how good of a start they were off to. But now that that's all- sort of fantastical we've had to had to pivot the show a little bit but that's totally fine because we have you know uh, a litany of guests to choose from like yourself but um to get back to the book you mentioned you know obviously ken griffey jr the generational talent uh who was kind of the inspiration maybe for uh your character's baseball but in terms of personality were you drawing from any real life baseball players when writing the character were there any like real life stories of players getting caught up in you know, shenanigans that you sort of stole from when writing Jason Goodyear? I mean, I really wanted, you know, a lot of people have talked about Mike Trout and I, you know, I looked at him, but not as much as a lot of other players, you know, Derek Jeter is another athlete that had sort of a, a, no offense to him, but sort of a bland public persona. Obviously he had, you know, a vibrant and complicated personal life, but just had really good Um, my sense from what I've read is, you know, more than him not having that social and personal life, he just had really good um, uh, support, you know, helping him keep his private life private. And, um, you know, so thinking about things like that, thinking about athletes who, of course, sort of historically ruptured that private life, staying private, um, you know, Pete Rose and Michael Jordan being two examples of that. Um, athletes that have, you know, pushed back against the sort of paparazzi element and and getting frustrated by that sort of the media, not just paparazzi, but the media in general, you know, prying and and insisting on more information about an athlete. I think that um, all of those fed into developing that character of Jason. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, in this current situation where there's no live sports and we've had to sort of relive old things or like, you know, the low hanging fruit for comparison's sake is like there's the, you know, the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls documentary out right now. And one of the things that I keep thinking when I'm watching it is if they had Twitter or a social media or the media presence that we have today, like none of none of these things would have flown like Dennis Rodman leaving in the middle of the season to go to Las Vegas like that would have been the only thing you ever saw on Twitter. So then now I think, I mean, having the ability to sort of write a fictional character, but based in a very real situation of athletes, you know, being asked to not only be role models in the traditional sense that athletes have been forever, but also be hyper scrutinized by the media following them at every step and, you know, analyzing everything they put out there. Like it's such a different climate. And I think being able to to take that and and create a fictional character sounds so interesting so uh yeah you know just to follow up it's a bit anachronistic because the book is set in 2011 sort of one because a major spring training stadium opened that year and two because you know that was sort of when phoenix was almost you know not the most guttered it you know it probably 2009 was the bottom of the recession but it was still really hurting from the the great recession um but you know i did want to think about sort of the pressures of 
where social media and media attention have brought us in 20, you know, 19, 2020, while I was writing this and publishing it. Um, and it's not just the athletes, you know, there's a whole chapter on baseball wives and the expectation of them to, you know, protect their husband's identities, but also to posture in a very kind of, you know, glamorous way um, to make their home lives, you know, as, as complicated as they are, look really glamorous. Yeah, it sounds like, too, you you were able to sort of, uh, I guess, highlight or write about certain aspects of baseball that are rarely represented in fiction. Like when you think of sort of the, the baseball stories that we see, you know, it's usually follows a very simple arc of, you know, oh, player X or whatever is down on his luck, maybe, or, in, you know, they are in a slump or they have something bad happen and then they have to redeem themselves or the team has to redeem themselves and then it ends and, you know, the, the montage of them winning the championship or whatever. But being able to, you know, devote time and pages to the baseball wives or I know um, the hitting coach that you mentioned earlier is a woman in this book. And there's like certain elements that I think with fiction, I mean, I guess the fictional part isn't even really that important because the Giants uh, have hired a female coach who is going to be in the dugout. Of course, that got delayed by the by the pandemic, unfortunately. But I think the thing that I'm getting at is being able to take these these parts of baseball that are underrepresented and write about them in a way that I think with the with fiction being sort of the the genre here, you're able to. Uh, but there's like there's realism here that's also. Uh, with you know the style of the book that you're able to to play up a little bit so what went into that process like what elements of baseball when you were sitting down to write this book did you think oh I want to include that and I'm going to be able to to write it in this way like what were the things that you for sure wanted to to include in the book that you were able to get into the final copy yeah I mean I wanted it to be a realist book but I think to your point like because it is fiction I was able to lean into some things there's a bit of hyperbole um, probably in every chapter, you know, there's a, a chapter about uh, a base, like a jealous baseball partial owner, and he's upset by he has a friendship with one of the team, one of the athletes, and gets upset and um, acts out in a really unprofessional way. And um, I have a friend who's, you know, married to someone in a front office and she said oh my husband would never do that but it was entirely believable and really compelling so I think for me the first thing was thinking about human characters thinking about challenging situations thinking about human behavior and how different people might react to hard situations you know and that that's sort of a driver of fiction universally um once I sort of had those you know big motivations and sense of where these stories might go uh, sort of drawn out. I won't even say it was a first draft at that point, you know, that took a while to get. So maybe the third or fourth draft, then I sort of went back and thought about the baseball aspect of it. Being a major fan, I had gotten most of the baseball details right, but I would say like every two or three pages, I was like, oh man, I don't know enough about this or that or the other. I need to research it. And then you know, you, you get that basic, not basic, you get the, the nuts and bolts, the, the reportage, the technical language and the particulars of it. And, you know, I, I'll admit, I probably put too many of them in the, in the next draft and just like piled them on. And then you take a step back and say, all right, I've got my, I've got my narrative, I've got my characters, I've got my baseball details. 
and how do I tinker, you know, adjust the, the hot and the cold, adjust the, the levels so this isn't just, you know, um, true to character, but also true to baseball. How does this become the most compelling version of this story? And it would be either, you know, cutting a little bit of the baseball information back or maybe tweaking some situations for hyperbole, like in the chapter where there's a pitching duel, one of the pitchers throws a complete game in spring training. And listen, I know, I understand that that would never happen. I understand that coaches are too protective of arms early in the season to let someone throw nine innings, but I wanted it. You know, I thought like, what, what an occasion, what a monumental event would this be if this kid, you know, is just so well tuned and well trained and ready to go because he's been playing winter ball that he can throw nine innings without really breaking his sweat. And so um, there are all sorts of decisions about that. You know, an early thing I wanted to write about were, um, you know, the, the year-rounders in this community who are sitting and waiting for the six weeks of spring training. That was an important early element for me. Um, writing about Tommy John, you know, I know that surgery is getting improved every season, um, and it has a high level of success rate, but, you know, it wasn't when I started writing and researching this, um, you know, success was about 85%, which is not 100%. It's not even over 90. And so what, what happens to those 15% of pitchers who do this major surgery are out of circulation for over a year and then come back and something's not right. Um, you know, I, I knew I wanted to write about, um, sort of, jealousy and competition between athletes um and and the generational shift of you know athletes who are who are close but maybe a decade apart and and um and the tension there sort of the potentiality of one person versus the the track record and success of another um so i had i had sort of a grab bag of things that i was really excited about within the the orbit of sports and um, just getting them to fit together took, I don't know, five or six years of of trying out, um, uh, yeah, to see, you know, who should be doing what, what order should these events happen in, what what feels like the right level of, of drama versus, you know, not just the facts, but like, when can I just lean on, you know, the, the, the realist situation of, you know, being a minor leaguer or, you know, being a walk-on in these, um, in spring training or, you know, being recruited too early and you're not ready. Like there are just a lot of really challenging inherent things to spring training and, and letting those hard situations from real life, um, be hard situations in the book was also something I wanted to do. Right. Yeah. The part that sounds so fun to me is being able to take sort of the groundedness of real baseball, like spring training is a real thing. There's, you know, certain parts of spring training that happen every year, but being able to take that and then adding your own twist or specifically saying, I know like the complete game thing, I know this wouldn't happen, but I want it to happen. Like that's the whole point of fiction. And that sounds so cool to me to be able to take something that we all know and love, but add, I guess, a personal flair to it to make it not only, you know, in a compelling read, but also just fun for you to write. Cause I, you mentioned it took five to six years. That was going to be my next question is I'm always 
sort of fascinated by the timeline of writing a book. So I was going to ask you right. how long it took, but you already answered well, that. So then my next... Well, it took longer than that, actually, I'd say. Oh. Because, you know, that first draft of just figuring out the human element and the characters um, was like two years, I'd say. So I had I had a couple of years of just writing furiously and figuring out sort of the core constituents of, of my team, you might say. But then getting all of the elements and figuring out everything else, um, that took the rest of the time. So I started writing in 2011 and I sold it in 2018 and I was rewriting it basically until they, you know, pried it out of my fingers last August. Wow. So had you had prior to 2011, I guess, or prior to when this idea came to your head, uh, had you spent any time at spring training? And then while you're writing the book, are you going and like sort of picking up on little details, like almost like a reporter? What is your relationship to actual spring training in Arizona or Florida, I guess, for that matter? Well, I've only been to Florida spring training once. And I guess that was actually the first spring training we went to. It was in 93. And, um, it was right after Steinbrenner was reinstated and we went to a Yankee spring training game and my dad grew up in the Bronx and someone had, he heard someone over talking at concession stand that, you know, Steinbrenner was in such and such a section. And my dad grabbed me and my sister, you know, these two little girls and like dragged us over there and just, you know, until he found the man and introduced himself as, you know, this longtime Bronx boy. Um, and I had no idea who George Steinbrenner was at that point. I was just like, who's this old guy? And then he signed our pennants, and then we watched the rest of the game. So that was my first spring training. But, you know, starting, I don't know, either the next year or the year after that, um, my dad and I made an occasion of going down to Arizona, not every year, but every couple years. And, you know, we'd fly down on a Thursday, maybe see Friday, Saturday, Sunday games, and then fly back on a Sunday night and, you know, go to Peoria, of course, but also, you know, make a point of going to other Arizona league stadiums. Um, so, you know, I, yeah, so that was, that was sort of my personal experience of it. I had, it had gotten into my veins. I'd gotten to know, um, what spring training felt like, how it had changed over 20 years. Um, so that was sort of already, you know, I didn't think as like a, a 14 year old, I was doing research for my first novel, but I had this sort of ingrained knowledge of the place, which is a strange thing to say, because I've lived, you know, in Seattle, on the East Coast and in the Deep South, but never actually lived in Louis- in in the Phoenix area. But I just I felt like I knew it. And then I also knew I didn't know it because I have never lived there. So we did a lot of research, um, you know, research about the place. Um, the history of Scottsdale, the history of the stadium. Um, and I did go back a few times, again, just for long weekends to watch baseball and was taking more notes, doing more photo research, um, thinking more about the neighborhood and the community around the stadium in a way that, you know, when I was just going to games, I was mostly just looking for parking. I wasn't quite as aware of the, you know, the really the, the workings of the stadium and and the whole ecosystem around it. Um, So I did some of that research. You know, I was reading a ton, both of sports fiction. You pointed out the really 
you know, the good slash bad thing about most baseball fiction is really about redemption or, you know, the end of the series, the end of the season, the bottom of the ninth. And, um, you know, looking at those examples and thinking how I might write against that. Um, and then, you know, a lot of research about the particulars of, you know, the history of spring training in this place. The, the different elements that I wanted to write about in these different chapters. You know, there's a great um, documentary on the draft out of the Dominican Republic. I knew it was complicated, but, you know, once I, you know, sp probably spent a week researching it and watching that documentary, reading a bunch, I was like, okay, I can write these, like, three pages about this picture from DR. So it was, it was a real mix in terms of research. I bet, yeah. And I was going to ask, because you kind of hinted at this as well in your last answer, if there was any sort of flashbulb moment that made you say, I want to write a baseball book. Because, I mean, you're there, you have, you know, the, the fandom experience that so many of us have, but very few people then have the, the opportunity to turn that into a book. So I was curious if there was one event, spring training or otherwise, that made you say, huh, this would actually be kind of an interesting topic for a book. Or did it just come to you sort of randomly like was there any moment you can remember that sort of started the ball rolling towards the cactus league as a finished product yeah you know i moved to louisiana in 2011 to start a graduate program in creative writing so like i knew okay i have three years to really put my head down and focus on writing and i was you know casting around trying to think about what i'd want to write about and meanwhile, it's the start of the football season in Baton Rouge. And, you know, SEC football is just this remarkable and strange, um, really just huge undertaking. You know, I think 250,000 people show up in Baton Rouge on a game day to tailgate and 100,000 people fit in the stadium. And um, obviously that is a different sport and different situation than spring training baseball but sort of the carnival element felt familiar um the way you know of course there's a game happening on the field and people are really invested in that but there are these concentric circles of um of drama you know it's it's uh, a group of collegiate athletes on the field but you know there's this whole economic engine around um NCAA sports that impacts not just the school, but, you know, so many local businesses, so much of the community, but then also just like walking around a tailgate and watching all of these clusters, these social clusters who have, you know, been waiting all year for the season to start to, to gather again to celebrate this, you know, group of 19-year-olds that they you know, don't necessarily know other than that they're wearing their team's jersey. Um, that, like, sort of all of those social constructs and, and complications, not just on the field, but around the team, um, felt not universal, but very similar to what happens in professional baseball and at spring training. And, you know, I, I don't want to say you could swap out football for baseball, and have the same story, but I think some of the aspects of, you know, professional sport or in the case of spring training, practice professional sport or in the case of collegiate football, you know, uh, amateur 
in preparation for a professional sport did feel really similar. And, you know, I, I wanted to write, I'm a huge baseball fan and I wanted to write a, you know, a love letter to baseball, but a love letter that was very, you know, frank about flaws and, and complications and ambivalence and, and frustration. Um, so, so I think that was my light bulb moment. That makes sense. The carnival element is really, it's, it, it hit my brain in a certain way because I've been during the, this period of no live sports at all. I've been thinking about like, you know, at its essence, like sports are just for me as a fan, like entertainment, like you would go to a game to watch the way you go to a carnival to experience the carnival. Like it's not, I know for the players there's, you know, stakes involved, but for people like us, we're just like, oh, yeah, I want to go to the carnival. Like, I want to go to the stadium. And when that's taken away, it's like you have this huge, uh, I guess, activity or something that you're just so used to having at this point in the year, like the way you would a county fair or a carnival or LSU football. Like, the calendar for sports fans is so set by, like, what sport is happening at what time. And then when it's gone, it's hard to, to like, sort of grapple with that and figure out what you can – replace it with because like you said i mean we're we are in love with this in a certain way you mentioned the book is kind of a love letter to baseball i mean this you know all the stuff that we do at the site is kind of a labor of love too like we just love the manners and we want to have an outlet to express that and when it's gone it becomes really hard so i'm sure i mean it's kind of unfortunate that you'll probably associate the book at least in some way with a global pandemic but like it's kind of fascinating in a way too to realize that like oh this came out at a time when there wasn't actual baseball and I wrote you know I spent what nine years writing about baseball only to have it come out at a time when that was taken away like have you thought about that at all and sort of the weird irony of the timing of all this I have you know especially because you know writing it and talking about it I was like ha 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 it's the baseball book without a lot of baseball like most of the book takes place off the field in the clubhouse and the parking lot and players homes and restaurants you know sort of once they're done with the game or before they start um and I thought oh it's fine because we have baseball you know there there's so many other narratives about performance on the field and now, of course, there's not performance on the field. And so, you know, I wouldn't rewrite it with more innings um, necessarily. But I have been thinking about that, you know, and also just the timing of it. We, we, you know, set the schedule to have the book come out early February because I really wanted it for pitchers and catchers and thought, you know, it had these six weeks of sort of not viability but like prime market time because spring training you know goes until March 25 and people will be so excited about it for those five weeks and then of course spring training got canceled early which you know I was I was meant to go down to Arizona to promote the book and go to spring training and missed all of that but on the other hand I had this weird suspension where people who are missing baseball are finding my book and it's bringing them some solace and some enjoyment which you know, obviously I'd rather just have a regular season and people would find the book in the off season, right? They'd, they'd get to it eventually, but it's been this weird, um, yeah, just this weird uh, limbo that I, I never would have anticipated, but I'm glad that I, you know, brought a baseball book to market in a year where there's no baseball. <laughs> um, yeah. I hope it, it can help some folks at least pass a weekend. Uh, although I guess now we can watch Korean baseball, right? 
That's true. Yeah, that's the big news of the week is that ESPN is televising Korean baseball. So I haven't gotten into it yet. I mean, I think they just started, but I know just because I'll be so deprived of baseball that I'll tune in for a few innings here and there. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Oh, before we get into the the reading element where you're going to read from the book, I wanted to ask one final question, which is just what was the hardest part of writing this book? What were the challenges you ran into? Um, what were the biggest frustrations? What do you because I know, you know, finishing a book is such a huge accomplishment and I'm sure the journey had a lot of ups and downs, but I'm always sort of fascinated by um the struggle really for lack of a better term or things that you didn't anticipate so what what happened along the way that uh you'll remember as the biggest challenge in in the process of creating the cactus league oh that's a great question you know i think for me i knew so many of these individual characters early you know they came to me i had a sense of who this person was and how i wanted them to be in the world um but getting them to work together, you know, there, there's, of course, the team, the Los Angeles Lions, it's a fictional team from L.A., but, you know, thinking about the whole ecosystem and the sort of the constellation that I was building out around the Lions and how those different teammates talk to one another, thinking about the, you know, essentially the set of dominoes that would click through to make a season you know for the longest time it was sort of if you can imagine like a vertical stack of pancakes where they were touching and they were smushed together and stuff was happening at the same time during the season but you know not necessarily in an intentional way and and I think it was you know a successful um story collection at that point but understanding that there was this better version of the book that would happen if I took those took that stack and arranged them along a timeline in a really meaningful way if I sort of reoriented a lot of these different people's experiences around Jason the same way that a team would operate you know if they made a 200 million dollar investment everyone's going to care about that athlete maybe more than even themselves and so understanding that and reorienting all these different players to to operate within that system was just like a very complicated math problem um of course it's art it's not math but or math is also art or whatever you want to say about it but it was a structural 
edit that just took, you know, several months, maybe a few years of hitting my head against the wall and trying things and having them not work, trying something slightly different. It was just, it was a really big, a much bigger undertaking than I realized when I set out. Yeah, well, I guess then without further ado, we could hear a little bit of the book. We've talked about it and we've talked about the process and the characters and all that went into it, but uh, I would love to hear it from you. So let's uh, let's let's hear the passage that you've selected from the yeah. Cactus League. Great, thank you. So I wanted to read right from the middle of the book and one of these few moments that's actually on the field because I know we're all missing baseball. Um, and, and like I said, you know, Greg is... Um, Greg Carver is not a bit player, but, you know, he's a teammate of Jason's. And while everyone's, you know, thinking about Jason and his spring training season, of course, there's it's spring training and they've got 80 invites who are trying to make the roster. And, you know, this year it's a 26-man roster, but usually it would be 25. And so that's, you know, those aren't great odds for for, you know, everyone but the starters, right? And so there's this whole other narrative built into spring training of these these cut days and um, the weekly cycle of maybe losing your job, maybe losing possibilities of the season. And I wanted to make sure that was in the book, that that was right in the middle of the book. So, you know, I, I put it, there's nine chapters, it's chapter five, and it opens like this. A bright afternoon blue sky, a sharp diamond of sun. Greg Carver is standing on the rubber and a man, the catcher, is jogging out to the mound. He knows this guy, this fire plug of a ball player with a long scar on his cheek, the flat nose of a boxer, a nickel gap between his front teeth. He knows him and his name is, the pitcher tries A's and then B's, running down the alphabet, Casey Dave Elliott, as the man approaches, lumbering under his gear. J. Jimmy. Jimmy's wearing a lion's uniform, as is Greg, white with black pinstripes, gold Los Angeles across the chest. This is surprising. The last time they played together, they were both stallions. Black and gold, too, but a different creature with hooves. A different place, Salt Lake. No red mountains rimming the horizon. I'll just mention Salt Lake Stallions are the AAA team. What's up, Jimmy? Greg glances over his shoulder to the left field scoreboard. It says that the Lions are winning over the Padres 5-2. It says it's the sixth that they have one out. He sees a runner on second, the man's hands on his hips. Greg's turn, Greg turns back to Jimmy, who's staring at him. You okay, Carve? Jimmy asks. His gold catcher's mask is pushed high on his forehead, a halo. Why wouldn't I be okay? Greg rubs the ball hard with his thumb, trying to ignore the sensation in his elbow. It's coming back quickly, the pain a drumbeat that keeps hurrying up. You seem a little... spacey? I'm fine. What did Coach Stu say? Greg has no recollection of a visit from Coach Stu. No idea who that is or what he said. Nothing much. The wing? Jimmy glances at the cut, the pale skin and red seam, the scarred over eyelids of the stitches. Twenty-six. One for every year, the doctor had said, like it was a good thing to be reminded of his station, that he'd be twenty-seven before he threw again. 
All winter, Greg had worn long sleeves to keep from seeing it, but this afternoon is too hot for anything more than the jersey. It's fine. He flaps his elbow to indicate as much. The pain had been small, rounded soft and smushed to fit in the palm of his hand, but that up and down sends it spinning into a larger shape, all sharp angles. The catcher's eyes jump to the arm and back. In Greg's mind, the scar is glowing. The scar is leering. The scar is six foot two, brown haired and blue eyed, a minor league pitcher trying to make the team. Think you can finish out the inning? I'm getting them over the plate, aren't I? The scar talks, the scar listens. The scar answers to the name of Greg. The catcher studies the pitcher's face. What did he see from behind the plate? What does he see from a foot away? The sweat dripping down Greg's face. He wipes at it with, a sh with his shoulder. Mostly, yeah. It's been six innings. Well, five and a third, but yeah. So. So. Jimmy's face bursts into a wide, crooked smile. That gap again. You got this. He smacks, he smacks Greg on the butt, trots a few paces, and turns back. Oh, he said. Putting, he says, putting the web of his glove over his mouth. This guy hit 30 homers last year, so keep it in. As Jimmy returns to the plate, Greg Carver looks around. The sunny afternoon, the impressive, unfamiliar stadium, the seats of the lower deck are mostly filled with gold-shirted fans. Red mountains he recognizes from Arizona Springs past. This is Lions Spring Training. He's pitching. Jimmy squats, flashes a signal between his legs. Greg nods, not that he remembers what the signal means, but because he knows to nod back. Jimmy spreads his feet, settling into the ankles to receive the impact of the pitch. That, he recognizes, his best friend's posture when he's expecting a breaking curve. Greg looks at the ball in his hand, adjusts his finger. He takes a deep breath and readies himself for a rocket of pain. And with it, the ball goes flying. There you go. Wow, that was that was great. Not only do I now want to buy the book, but I'm also so invested in these characters. Like I was putting little faces of actual baseball players to them and thinking, like, oh, what's the comparison? Like, who am I? Who am I thinking of when I hear these descriptions of sort of the journeyman or the person coming back from injury? So that was. That was great. I'm sure that uh, a lot of people listening to this would also find a lot of enjoyment in the book. Um, so thank you for sharing that with us. That was wonderful. Cool. So before I let you go, I just, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't let you escape without talking a little bit about your beloved, or maybe not beloved, we'll find out, about the Seattle Mariners Baseball Club, uh, the team of, of your childhood and... I assume the team of your, your adulthood to some extent, although I know you've left Seattle, so that probably complicated things. But uh, yeah. I wanna, whenever I talk to people about the Mariners, I want to start at the beginning. So uh, how did you, I guess, become aware of the Mariners? Were they your entry point to baseball as a concept? Or was there some... When you mostly, know about the Seattle... Go yeah, ahead, they, they were mostly my, my entry point. Um, my dad, as I mentioned, is from New York and was a Yankees fan. And he and my mom ended up in Seattle either the first year of the Mariners franchise or maybe they caught that, you know, minute of the pilots. I'm not quite sure, but they ended up in Seattle in the late 70s, right when baseball got here as well, or Major League Baseball. And so, um, 
my mom is from Nebraska, so like the first documented game I've been to was actually Royals AAA in Omaha. But that being said, my dad, you know, was the diehard baseball fan, and I'm the younger of two girls. My sister had no interest in baseball, and so, you know, when I got big enough, my dad basically said, "You're, you're coming with me," and it became our thing to do together to go to baseball games. This was made a lot easier because, you know, I was born in 83, so Ken Griffey Jr. was a rookie um, when I was six. You know, it was just like such a cool thing to be this little girl watching, you know, he was called the kid. I sort of, obviously, we, we weren't peers, but it just, it felt like this really exciting access point to watch, you know, the best swing in baseball, this just athlete of great promise and potential, realize that potential, but like have him just be this fun-loving, accessible, um, really great uh, uh, spokesperson and, and hero of the team. You know, and that started in 89, but just continued, you know, until he went to Cincinnati, right? Yeah. So then when do you physically leave Seattle? Uh, At what point did you make your move to to New York, and how did that affect the way that you consumed and followed the Mariners? Um, I left in 2001 to go to college, and, you know, then I was on the East Coast, and then in the deep south and then back now I'm back in New York and I mean the biggest problem of course is the time difference and that so many games don't start until 10 p.m. Uh, here and so that was just you know durationally that's hard to stay up till the till the end of the game and then of course you know with blackouts and and you know 20 years ago of course it was a different issue of you know who what bar might have the right cable pack so you could get, you know, baseball on the West Coast and, and or, you know, I was living in Providence. So if the Mariners were playing the Red Sox, I would, you know, drag my friends out to watch at a sports bar because that was the only time all year I'd get to watch uh, the Mariners on TV. Um, so that was sort of the, the first generation of it. You know, now I have an MLB uh, app and I, you know, listen to a few innings a couple times a week. And if I can, again, there's still the timing issue. And I, you know, I'll get the update with the, you know, with the score at the end of the night. Or if it wakes me up too many nights in a row, I'll, I'll switch it over and just check it in the morning to see how the Mariners did the night before. Um, so so I just, think I, I mean, I miss, I, you know, I... I just, I grew up listening, either watching the game or like carrying around like a little AM radio and listening to it wherever I was. And um, yeah, you know, I missed that aspect. You know, now I still, I feel like a couple nights a week, I like turn on the TV, well, not this season, but you know, last season I turn on the TV and just like want to watch a little baseball before the end of the day and, you know, would have to watch the Mets, (laughs) but I'd much rather be seeing Mariners baseball. And, you know, having that be my evening ritual, because that's really what I grew up with. But, um, you know, I always go, uh, when I was living in Louisiana, we would drive to Houston to watch the Mariners play the Astros when they were there. And now when the Mariners play the Yankees, I always see one or two games in the series. 
That's great. So it's not, I mean, the ritual part is, wouldn't be the hardest. I mean, I had the same thing when I left for college. I was not able to watch the Mariners every night or fall asleep to them. Luckily, I was still on the West Coast, so the timing was still there, but I didn't have easy access to the Mariners. And that, the loss of routine is what drove me to get the MLB subscription and, you know, be able to watch them every night or whenever I wanted to because it just felt like something was missing. And I totally relate to that feeling of, Oh, like, you know, I just I don't really want to watch the Mariners as much as I want to just have baseball on or in my ears or whatever, you know, just to have that sort of like a friend around. So I wanted to ask about um, how have the Mariners being bad affected you? Do you think that seeped into your your sensibilities when writing the book at all, being sort of a fan of a team that doesn't have a lot of recent success or how is I mean, there's a lot of layers here, but I guess the two main (laughs) questions are. How has the Mariners being bad affected your fandom of them? And then if at all, how do you think it affected the book, even if it was perhaps subconscious? Well, I mean, I think, you know, looking for a narrative away from the end of the season, like being being a bit fatalist, like, well, if it's not going to be about postseason ball, what, where, where is the other drama? You know, that, right. that, that conceit comes naturally to a Mariners fan, right? Um, so I think subconsciously that was there. Um, yeah, I, what, we have the longest streak now of no postseason baseball, right? Is that true? Yeah, well, it's the longest current streak. I don't know. There's probably teams that have had longer streaks in past eras, but right now, yeah, yeah, the Mariners are setting the standard. Yeah, I mean, and that's just such a bummer. Um, you know, I, I feel like 2001 and 95 were, like, kind of like yesterday, you know, and on a certain level, I can still, you know, talk about the starting lineup, maybe not in the order that they usually batted, but, you know, I just, that team and those successful seasons um, just, you know, still feel very close, and I think that's, you know, maybe part of why I haven't their, their current, you know, lackluster performance is probably part of why I haven't sought them out and done more work around, stayed up later, um, gotten woken up by the app more often. Um, but on the other hand, I miss it. Like, I don't want to become a Yankees fan out of convenience. And, you know, I do want to know the starting lineup of the 2020 Mariners. And, you know, I looked at I, I probably know half of the guys, right? But, like, the fact that I've lost that familiarity is something that makes me kind of sad. Um, so I think that means I'm still a Mariners fan. That You know, I want to um, – or I know I'm still a Mariners fan. But, um, you know, the, the, long, the long slump has, has just made me wish for – I, I mean, hope springs eternal. I just keep thinking maybe this season will be better. <laughs> yeah. As soon as you mentioned fatalism, I was like, oh, she's one of us. We've got a true to the blue Mariners fan here because yeah. that I think is the main through line, unfortunately, is, you know, there's hope. Everyone has different levels of optimism and hope, but it's hard to shake that creeping feeling that something is going to go wrong. And that, that's kind of what I was hinting at in terms of if it affected the book at all, if there's any elements of that sprinkled throughout the uh the pages of the book because i feel like it would just be hard to avoid like your baseball brain is probably so caught up in mariners dumb and fatalism to some extent that i'm sure it's just you know hard to avoid yeah 
Yeah, and like that sort of delusional hope that, you know, a refrain across the book is, you know, people who probably won't have a great spring season, like people who are either too old or have this injury that will be really hard to overcome or, you know, are in a tricky political situation where, you know, the powers that be don't want them to succeed. Uh, but they're, they're dogged and determined and want to make it anyway. And, um, you know, I, I made that decision to have that be sort of a, uh, an emotional refrain for a lot of reasons, but I think you could say the same of a lot of Mariners fans, right? Yeah. 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 And I mean, I've been doing this, uh, all off season, which I guess now is just forever. Um, but trying to talk to people about not only how they became Mariners fans, but why they continue to do it and how it's affected other elements of their lives. And the best part is that no one really has the same answers. I mean, a lot of people have the same origin that you mentioned of just being born in Seattle and then having Griffey on the TV every night. But the way that evolves is, is just so, so interesting to me. And I think what makes Mariner fandom so unique is that, you know, losing in itself isn't that interesting, but the way that it manifests is. And I think it's, you know, winning is one thing and the way that that changes people like we all know a Yankees fan or a Red Sox fan in our life who you know has become a little insufferable in some respects it's just the truth and with the Mariners it's kind of the opposite of that you know you you find ways to find comfort in sadness and I think that's also very Seattle and it just it all I don't know it's so it's so meta to elements of it but uh I don't know I've been I've had a lot of fun talking to people about it so I'm glad that we could have some time uh during this conversation to to sort of broach the subject. I'm also, I don't know if any of your other baseball fans have brought this up, Mariners fans have brought this up. I'm curious about, like, my my just determination to, to hang on and to persevere, despite just, you know, so many times we've been disappointed. You know, the 100-win season that went nowhere, um, <laughs> that Randy Johnson went into the Hall of Fame as a Diamondback, just felt like this profound betrayal, um, the whole career of Alex Rodriguez, really, you know, and, and how, or at least once he left for Texas, and just, you know, in any other part of my life, you know, if something like that happened, or if that happened again and again, I would walk away and say, this has hurt me too many times, they don't, you know, it's, the team doesn't doesn't care, but of course, you stay a fan. You hope right. for better. Yeah, you break up with them if they were a partner or if they were your friend. You'd stop hanging out with them, but for whatever yeah. reason, there's almost guilt attached to it too. Like you feel like you have to stick around. It's 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 a whole thing. <laughs> At least it's better to watch games now. True, true, true. I mean, true. the kingdom. Ugh. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing too is that Mariners history is so dense like they've only been around since the late 70s and really from 77 until 95 there's or I guess 94 there's not a lot and then it all just sort of happened so quickly and faded out like there's just no other franchise like it and I think for people of a certain age too like that was so formative that it's hard to recover from and I totally understand why a lot of people have bailed you know but I respect the people who have stuck around obviously but also you know I do not fault anyone who has watched the Mariners from the ground up and decided mm, maybe I'm done with them. <laughs> no, you know I I'm I'm ready for the next round. I I want to see what happens um, with uh, 
with Kyle Lewis. And, um, you know, I watched uh, Nola in Louisiana when he was a collegiate athlete. So, um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to the season whenever it happens. Yeah, I think that's where we're all at right now. Um, But Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. This was great. I hope everyone listening to this buys the book wherever you can buy books. Uh, Obviously, you have that to plug, but I was going to give you time to sort of direct people towards other things, maybe other works you've done or, you know, follow you on Twitter, all that stuff. Now is the time for self-promotion. So fire away. Oh, great. Thank you. Well, I have a website, emilynemons.com. Emily Nemons is also my Twitter handle. Um, I know that it's, you know, with bookstores closed, it's a little bit hard to order books right now. Amazon isn't delivering books as, you know, an immediate thing. I would point people to a new website called bookshop.org to get my book, but also, you know, everyone who has new books coming out this spring, it's like pretty disorienting for authors to not be able to go on book tour and be at bookstores to support their work. But bookshop.org has a ton of new books, but also it has made a commitment that 10% of every purchase goes to independent bookstores around the country. So they're, you know, they're open and shipping and, you know, if, if you've got suddenly got a lot of time on your hands, uh, why not read a novel? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That's great. Yeah, definitely support the non-Amazon and non-conglomerates in times like this. I think that's the least we can do in terms of uh, social impact and things like that. Um, but yeah, the website you mentioned sounds great. Everyone check that out. Uh, like you said, we all have so much time to sit around and read. And it's nice to be able to replicate baseball through the power of literature so i assume that lots of people are jumping at that right now um follow me on twitter at mrobertson22 uh subscribe to this podcast we will keep it going no matter what happens to the actual season it's unfortunately looking less and less likely that we're going to have a normal season i mean if you believe the reports they're saying maybe we'll start in july but that's also being Sort of pushed back against there's no one really knows what to believe so just follow the lookout landing podcast and we'll keep you up to date <laughs> on all things baseball um read the site obviously lookoutlanding.com and um yeah i don't really have anything to plug besides that i mean just be nice to each other you know in a time like this all we can really do is is i guess embrace humanity and if that means reading but not book, embrace then, each other yeah yes that's true metaphorically embrace do not do not hug thank you everyone for listening thank you emily for joining the show and until next time goodbye